Our Father, we have indeed come to praise. We are a people who find that praising the God of all beauty and grace is something that is increasingly our joy and delight. We ask, O God, that what goes on here will be so authored, so inspired, so so controlled by the Holy Spirit of God that indeed praises might end up at the throne room of heaven. Oh God, that we live in a, in a turbulent world where there's a lot of people who hate a lot of other people. There are, uh, there is, there's so little peace around the planet. And we pray, oh God, that you might use us as a, as a portion of the solution. That you might use us to spread this gospel of peace that we so love and so enjoy to the end that it might bring peace among men. Oh God, we pray for our government as she makes some pretty uh, serious decisions in these coming days and weeks. Pray that you will grant the, the wisdom of your Holy Spirit as, um, as decisions are, or as wisdom is sought and decisions are made. Our Father, for Gracie Van, we pray we are as sinful as any other church in America. We recognize our inconsistencies, but oh, Heavenly Father, we so desire to see the inconsistency become less. We so desire to see uh, more of the image of Christ pressed in upon us. And we ask, oh God, that while we worship here this morning, that your spirit will, would facilitate that very thing. For the broken heart that sits in these pews, oh God, we pray. We ask that something will be said or done or sung or prayed in such a way that people might leave here with a greater degree, a greater measure of hope than, than when they came. Lord, um, we have problems facing us, the complexity of which overwhelm us. And so we ask that you'll sort it out, that you'll simplify it, that you'll make it something that is that we can live with better simply by a fresher insight, a deeper insight into your character and nature. And now, Father, take these monies and use them for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. And that only, we're after one thing, the advance of the kingdom of God. Use these monies for that purpose. And we pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Bibles now, if you will, and open them once again with me to the uh, book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to return there for one more week. You might recall that um, we were there two weeks ago, but then we were interrupted by, um, by Father's Day, and so we're back there again. So you follow as I read in your copies of God's Word. We'll begin at verse 1. We'll read through verse 10. Genesis chapter 3 at verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. I began this series several weeks ago by calling it a multi-headed monster. Well, what is a multi-headed monster? What is it that's a multi-headed monster? Well, I suggest to you the the multi-headed monster is the pursuit of self-esteem uh, that pursuit, that, that thing that Bob Schuler said was my uh, emotional birthright. Again, you've you got to admit uh, that at least this much is true. Our culture is absolutely saturated with proponents of self-esteem. People who, um, who suggest that high self-esteem is the remedy for just about everything. High school dropout rate and unwed teenage pregnancy rate and drug use and crime. Well, in the midst of all that cacophony of, of sound, I, uh, my voice just might be uh, one crying in the wilderness, folks. Because I, for one, am convinced that self-esteem, this this pursuit of self-esteem is nothing more than the, the socially acceptable term for self-absorption or pride, which C.S. Lewis called the complete anti-God state of mind. It's that preoccupation with self that I, I myself want to get beyond and, and want to take you along with me and, and replace that pursuit with, with a biblically informed view of who I am. Now, um, that's what I think will make us healthy or healthier. Uh, not more chatter about how okay I am. That's not making me healthier, ladies and gentlemen. Very, If anything, it's making me sicker. I'm suggesting that replacing that, that pursuit of self-absorption with a biblically informed view of myself, that will take us more towards a position and a posture of health. So, my first task, and a daunting one it is... <laughs> My first task is the challenge of convincing you that you and I are on the wrong track. 
We, we've chosen a wrong path. I don't know why. Maybe the culture overcame us. I, it's not important to me as to why or how much, how we got there or why we're there. But we're there. We're on the wrong track. And, and what I'm trying to do at this early stage of this series is simply to convince you of that. That this track that we're on is the wrong one. It's not helping us, ladies and gentlemen. We're not getting better. Um, I, I know that you would like for me to hasten on to the, well, what about the biblically informed uh, view of myself? We're going to get to that. But you've got to be patient with me. ladies and gentlemen. We, we're going to be interrupted next week with July the 4th. And then hopefully somewhere mid-late July, we'll start constructing. But before we do that, we have to do some destructing. There's got to be some destruction before construction. So hang in there. But right now, basically, all I hope to accomplish is to convince you that we're on the wrong track. And this thing that we have bought into, it ain't helping us. It's hurting us. So, having said that by way of introduction, let's take a look again at Genesis chapter 3. Two weeks ago, I I introduced to you what I called the origin of the problem. That is, I suggested that in Genesis 3, what uh, what takes place in Genesis 3, known as the historical fall, uh, it was there that the whole problem began. But today, I, I want to expand my analysis of Genesis 3 just a bit. I said two weeks ago that our first self awareness. The first instance of self-awareness um, came on the as a re- direct result of the entrance of sin, as you see it in verse three seven. That is, once sin has occurred in verse six, we are told immediately in verse seven that the eyes of, 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 of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. The first sense of self-awareness came as the result of the entrance of sin. Adam and Eve uh, now interpret life, all of life, through a different focus. They used to be focused one way, but once sin entered, there became a recognition and an understanding of my nakedness. Their nakedness became a matter of shame for them, whereas before it wasn't shame. Sin didn't make them naked. They were naked long before sin. But now they're aware. And there's a shame attached. Um, this, this entrance of sin created for them an awareness of themselves that they hadn't had before. As, as unfallen creatures, they were, um, they viewed life one way. But now as fallen creatures, the whole focus has changed. They used to rejoice in everything. Now they rejoice in nothing. They, um, they make this feeble attempt at, at covering their shame, as you see by the fig leaves. Uh, and they, they hide from the God that they used to love to fellowship with. They, uh, They hear the sound of him walking in the garden, and now not only are they self-aware, they're also afraid. 
They're, uh, they're distanced from their God. They're distanced from each other. And, they're tr- and that distance is represented in that, in that effort that is hiding, covering their shame. And um, as I said two weeks ago, not only are they distanced from God and each other, they're distanced from, from themselves. We, we hide, we today hide behind this artificially constructed view of self-worth. We piece together this thing that we hope will make us feel good enough about ourselves so that we can stride confidently through life and through uh, relationships. Gang, according to Genesis 1, verse 26, you and I, man, was made in the image of God. Nothing else but us. Nothing else is made in his image except man. None of the other creatures are like him except us. We're the only part of the creation that is considered very good. God gives to man this this capacity that he doesn't give to anybody else. He gives to us this capacity to relate to him, to relate to deity. But... Sin entered. And that sin separated us from God. There's now this gulf between the God in whom I used to rejoice. And now I don't rejoice. And now I'm frightened of him and and run and hide. Even though I still bear his image. Even though there are still some recognizable imprints of deity on me. I'm now afraid of him. The, uh, there's, a, there's an interesting statement, guys, and I think you know it. You, you don't need to find it. Um, but I, this is a familiar statement that is made in, Mark, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 16 about the value of the soul. Listen to this statement. This is, um, um, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Ladies and gentlemen, you're the only ones in the creation that has one of those. And it is so valuable that nothing compares with it. Along with it comes all of these capacities. These capacities to relate to deity. These capacities to, um, to re- reduce the suffering of mankind. These capacities to worship. Um, the, the capacity to love and express uh, kindness and compassion. All of those are a part of this this privilege that you and I have of having a soul. But then sin entered. And it was that that fell into ruin. This this cosmic car wreck called the fall has mangled us all, ladies and gentlemen. And though there are still some recognizable imprints of deity on all of us, Because of the entrance of sin, everything has changed. Primarily, the focus with which we used to live life. Adam and Eve were focused one way prior to sin. They were focused another way after sin. 
Now, again, because of the entrance of sin, we no longer are comfortable walking with God in the cool of the day. We're, not, we're afraid of Him. We're no longer comfortable. Not only are we not comfortable walking with Him, we're not comfortable walking with Eve either. And uh, perhaps even more importantly, we're not, we're not comfortable walking with ourselves because sin is so radically divisive. We don't like ourselves. We feel naked and ashamed. Gang, um, it's only then that we become uncomfortable with each other. Um, from, from that point, we launch this, this lifelong project of self Recreation. Gang, there is a vast difference between self-improvement and self-recreation. Recreation is the desperate attempt on our parts to recover what was lost in the garden. And the, and the thing that was stolen for, from us. Because we believed a lie. And now we are consumed with self-awareness. That's where it came from, ladies and gentlemen. That's where it came from. You know, to make matters worse, we, uh, we have had our nakedness proven by Charles Darwin and his friends. We have been told through scientific law. That we're naked, all right. We're naked apes. We're uh, civilized monkeys. We're sophisticated blobs of protoplasm. And, and if that's so, then, then my worth is viewed as nothing more than what's the, some kind of utilitarian value. What am I worth? What is my value? You know, there's a couple of schools of scientific thought that have answered that question for you. One, uh, one group that I read uh, said, uh, or asked this question, do you want to know what your body is made of? They answered, the constituent parts of the body of a man is equal to about 1,200 eggs, enough iron to make two tenpenny nails, enough phosphorus to make about 4,000 matches, enough fat to make 75 candles, give or take a few <laughs> with some of us, uh, one bar of soap, enough hydrogen to fill a balloon so that it would float in the air, 60 spoonfuls of salt, a bowl of sugar, and six gallons of water. That's it. But Charles Mayo, the founder of the Mayo Clinic, he, he went one step further. His is worse. He said, this is what we're made up of. Enough lime to whitewash a chicken coop. Enough magnesium to make, to, to make a dose of magnesium, enough potassium to explode a toy cannon, and enough sulfur to rid your dog of fleas. Total value, buck ninety-eight. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that if Charles Darwin is right and that you are nothing more than a sophisticated blob of protoplasm, you're worth about a buck ninety-eight. That's it. 
You ought to go out and drink yourself into oblivion. Because that's it. On top of all that, I, I live in a culture that dehumanizes me. I, uh, it started when I was born. If I'm, um, if I'm fortunate enough to, to not be abandoned at birth, then my, my presence in the home may or may not be exactly valued. In fact, I might get the impression that I'm really in my parents' way as they uh, chase after some elusive butterfly. And, and if I avoid both of those horrible things, then my chances are real good because of the cataclysmic breakdown in the family fabric of this country. My chances are real good that I'll be raised in a one-parent home. And at best, my one parent can't possibly be both mom and dad to me. And at worst, I just may blame myself for the breakup of the family in the first place. But then, being truly blessed by having none of those things happen to me, I learned very early in my life that the three major criteria by which my society affixes worth to me are beauty, talent, and wealth. And sadly enough, I don't seem to excel in any of those three. Beauty, talent, or wealth. So... uh, It comes as no surprise, or at least it shouldn't, that uh, just about everybody, ladies and gentlemen, is grappling with a sense of what what is my worth? What value do I have? You know, guys, um, in the midst of all that, to the rescue comes a group of well-intentioned but um, wrongly informed parents who tell me that I am very valuable because I eat my chicken nuggets and I made my bed once. And so, I'm a very fine lad. I don't know about the rest of you, ladies and gentlemen, but it doesn't surprise me that we're all wrestling with issues as to our worth and value. And my proposition is this, is that in that pursuit, we've chosen to allow the world to tell us how to get it. I think that's the wrong track, and it's about to kill us. You know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a regular occurrence. Maybe once a month we hear something like this. Somebody comes to this church and they, they sit down in one of these pews and they look around at all these, uh, relatively attractive and sweet smelling people and, and they come to the conclusion that, uh, other people in this church don't have that problem. And I get the privilege of telling them, oh yeah, they do. They do. Um, you're not the only one, my dear sister. We're all wrestling. We're all struggling to make some sense of what is it that gives us value. 
you know, even the holiest of us, and I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking, this is so interesting, at least it was to me, in, in, in Matthew chapter 19, you know, old Peter, um, our friend, Peter goes to Jesus. Now, this is in Matthew 19. This is not early on. This is in the middle of the whole thing. Peter goes to Jesus and he, he asks this question. He says, now, Jesus, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? <laughs> you know what he's asking, don't you? Hey, Jesus. You know, this is how this thing's supposed to work. I, you know, I, I go to church and I, and I give my money and I teach a Sunday school class and there's, there's supposed to be certain things in this for me. What do I get out of this, Jesus? I mean, uh, you know, uh, you know, in view of uh, who I am, uh, tell me, Jesus. What am I going to get out of this? And, and I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that again is another evidence of the cry of the human heart. Tell me, tell me for God's sake, where does my worth come from? Ladies and gentlemen, do you see the immense treachery of the human heart? That we would even take grace and we would turn it into an opportunity to get our hands in God's pockets? What kind of goodies can I get, God? I mean, if I do this, if I, if I chase after you, you know, what are you going to give me? Oh, uh, we left uh, our fishing businesses and our, and our families and we left our love of family and our love of career. We left it all behind. But there was one love that they brought with them, ladies and gentlemen. It was the love of self. They didn't leave that one behind. And um, they took it along with them when they followed Jesus to the point that in the midst of that three-year ministry, they asked him, Hey, uh, Jesus, what am I going to get out of this? You know, ladies and gentlemen, in the evangelical church today, we are told to give money. Because we'll get back tenfold in return. Uh, have you ever, ever heard of the hundredfold heresy? That is, you give your money and God's going to give you a hundredfold in return. We're told to teach vacation Bible school because we're going to get a blessing. We're told to serve Jesus Christ because you're the one that's going to benefit. The takeover is complete. Gang, um, this pursuit of self-esteem has given us a whole new vocabulary of self. There is self-fulfillment. There is self-interest. There is self-love. There is self-discovery. And there is self-esteem. a little girl who uh, went off to school early one morning and she took her birth certificate with her and her, her mother had warned her, don't you lose your birth certificate. That's a very important document. Don't lose your birth certificate. So she goes off to school and sure enough, 
She loses her birth certificate. And so in the, right after recess, she's sitting on the school steps and she's bawling her little eyes out and the church janitor comes up to her and says, Darling, why are you crying? And she said, Because I lost my excuse for being born. But we're desperately trying to find one, aren't we? We're trying to find it in self. You know, guys, you listen to self-esteem speakers and... uh, They make claims that they can't prove, but they sound so right. The the most recent one that I heard was this. I heard this, ladies and gentlemen. Within the last 90 days, I heard somebody standing behind a pulpit representing the God we love. I heard him say, if you don't accept yourself, you have nothing to give anyone else. Now, doesn't that sound so right? As I said, it's unprovable, but doesn't it sound right? I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, it's just another excuse for us to be self-absorbed. You know, all of this talk about a buck 98 bodies, and uh, it may lead you to conclude that this subject is... uh, is not as serious as it is. Because it's real serious, isn't it? We know it is. We know how important this whole subject is. Steve Brown, a a name that some of you will recognize, one of my uh, favorites. Steve Brown tells a story about uh, doing a bit of counseling um, on one occasion, and it was a young woman who came to see him. And uh, she walked in the office, and no sooner had she taken her seat that she began to bawl. He just bawled, and, you know, Steve was, you know, hadn't seen him said a word yet, except hello. And he's trying to figure out what was going on, and she's just sobbing uncontrollably. And, and he reaches towards her with a tissue, and she takes that. And then when she finally, you know, gathers herself, she opens her purse, and she pulls out a picture out of her purse, and she gives it to Steve. And Steve looked at it, and it was a picture of... Um, of a beautiful little two-year-old girl, and Steve said, you know, I thought it was maybe her daughter or something, and, and so he looked at the little girl, and, and finally, when um, he had looked long enough, the woman said, that's me! And look at what I've done to her! How could this happen? Well, gang, here's my analysis. Take it or leave it. But here's how I think it happened. I want to suggest to you that nobody can hurt us more than ourselves. We we have been sold a bill of goods, ladies and gentlemen. We have been told, like Eve was told, that if we'll just pursue sin, we're going to know things. And, oh, we knew things all right. We found out things that we didn't want to find out. We bought into a lie like Eve did. And then for a, for a lifetime, this sense of worth, this sense of self-worth, 
is, is been our pursuit. And I'm suggesting to you that it will never come. It will never come on the heels of self-absorption. We're going to have to look elsewhere. The track we're on, ladies and gentlemen, let's call it what it is. It's pride. And it's ruining us. I read a story about a young priest who checked into the monastery or entered the monastery for the first time and and he was wrestling this one particular sin. And so he went to his senior confessor and, and he said, Father, I am tortured with pride. And um, the senior confessor said, you ought to be proud. It is you that made the heavens and the earth, correct? He said, I was cured of pride from then on. Gang, all of this craving to be ahead of other people, this desire to be more valued than other people, to be more highly rewarded than other people, to, uh, to be able to keep others in a state of fear uh, and intimidation, this uh, inability to uh, admit mistakes and apologize, the inability to um, accept criticism, those are all symptoms. Those are all symptoms of self-absorption. They're all symptoms of the self-life gang. Pride opens the door to countless other sins like deceit and lying, doesn't it? It... Um, it is the thing that ruins community and splits husbands and wives and tears up families and ruins churches. But it sounds right. It isn't. Gang, um, remember that text I read you from Matthew 16 about uh, what would a man exchange his soul for? If to exchange your soul for the whole world would be a bad transaction, how much more insane it is to exchange our souls for a toy? A toy known as self-esteem. I want to read you something and I'm finished. There was a play that was uh, at least very popular in London in the uh, late 60s. It was written by a, a Scandinavian, Enrique Ibsen. And um, uh, it was a play about a man who visited an insane asylum. He visited the insane asylum and as he walked through the insane asylum, he concluded, why are these people here? They're not insane. They talk so reasonably, so sensibly. He said, there must be some mistake. These people are not insane. They're, they're, in fact, they're quite sane. They're, I don't understand because this is supposed to be a place for insane people, and these people seem so sane. 
So he gets the doctor, the head of the, uh, the, the asylum, and he calls him over and says, Sir, I, I, I don't understand this. This is an insane asylum, as, 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 you, as it says there on the door. And, but all these people seem so sane. I want to read you this line from the play that is spoken by the doctor in reply to that question. He says this. Some of the language is somewhat difficult, but you'll get the point. This is the doctor's reply to the visitor's question about, aren't they sane? I don't look at sane to me. This is the doctor. He says this. Um, he admits that the patients talk sensibly, but it is all about themselves. Then he continues. Here, in this asylum, man is himself to the uttermost limit. Himself and nothing beside whatsoever. As himself, he progresses full steam ahead. He encloses himself in a barrel of self. In self-fermentation, he steeps himself, hermetically sealed with the bung of self. No one sheds tears for another's sorrows. No one considers another's ideas. We're ourselves in thought and word and deed ourselves to the springboard's uttermost edge. Oh, yes, young sir, we talk sensibly, but we're mad, truly enough. Gang, I am convinced. That all this talk about self-interest and self-promotion, self-esteem, is a sign of our insanity. It is not a symptom of our health. Go back to Genesis 3 and read it again and discover for yourself when was it that Adam and Eve were the most healthy? We're on the wrong track. But there is a right one. And we're going to get to it pretty soon. Our Father, I do pray that you will convince your people that this, this cultural mantra that reverberates in education and in corporation and in neighborhoods and even in churches. It's all so wrongly focused. It's all so wrongly taught that we're supposed to think so wonderfully in, that of ourselves because intrinsic to our nature is this wonderful piece of performance. It is such a trap for us, Father. And I cannot speak for the rest of these people. But I, for one, have fallen into the trap. Rescue me, O oh God. Rescue me from this world of self-absorption. By Your grace, change my focus from self Christ. And I pray that we will discover 
and ongoing, increasing health among us as we discover how beautiful it is to live with a definition about who we are that was given to us by Jesus Christ Himself. We commit ourselves to that, Father, and pray that you will take us there soon. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.